Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. On to episode five, and this week we are shining a spotlight on a leader who has shaped the strategic vision of organisations across the globe on diversity and inclusion. Following a decade of guiding South African organisations on dismantling apartheid in the workplace, Heather Price has continued her mission for creating working environments that are psychologically safe. This is defined as a person's willingness to bring their whole self to work, to speak up, propose new ideas, challenge traditional ways of doing things and take intelligent risks all without fear of punishment, humiliation, or career limitations. Heather has presented at numerous international conferences on issues of inclusion, bias, and psychological safety, paired with establishing consulting group Symmetra in Australia in 2003. Listen in as I chat with Heather about her journey in breaking down barriers, creating a psychologically safe workplace, and being aware of the unconscious bias that could be holding us back. All right, welcome Heather Price to Pebble in the Pond podcast. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Pleasure. I appreciate uh, appreciate your time. And wow, what a what what a career you've had. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, I mean, let's start if we go back to South Africa because obviously mm. born and bred in South Africa. Mm. Uh, tell me about what what you were doing growing up, and then and then how you got into the space that you're in at the moment. Oh well, it was interesting because I grew up in South Africa as a privileged white. Okay. You know, I had everything laid on a platter for me. And when I left school, I thought, it might sound very cliched, but I thought, well, what I want to do is make a difference and work with people who are disadvantaged in society. I'd been very influenced by my father, who'd been very involved in Rotary and lots of charitable work after hours outside of his business. Um, But I went to university, I qualified first as a social worker, and then started working as a social worker, and it was hopeless in South Africa. Um, it didn't take me long. It took about um, five to eight years of practice to realize that all I was doing was putting Band-Aid on somebody who had cancer. Wow. Because I would take people who, you know, suffered from alcoholism or drug addiction or criminal recidivism, but then all I was doing was throw, fixing them up and then throwing them back into a system that was sick. So the problems were systemic. The, problems was apart- the problem was apartheid. Yes. And so I realized that what I was doing was hopeless you know, absolutely hopeless. And um, I left social work in absolute frustration. Um, And that's when I decided to go into the first human resource consultancy that was ever established in South Africa. So I'm talking about a long time ago. Um, And what they were doing was working with black economic empowerment. They were at that point in time in South Africa, and I'm talking about in the 1980s, the late 1980s, the average South African black who was employed was supporting between 16 and 20 unemployed individuals. Wow. And the way I saw it was if I joined this particular human resource consultancy where they were running 
supervisory development programs for for um, blacks that I would make that difference in a much more effective way. So I started working wow. for them. Um, what was it like growing up and living in the apartheid times? Oh well, you you were very cocooned as a as a white child. You you know I happened to have very liberal parents, yeah. so only through that did I really know what was going on. But South Africa didn't have TV. They banned TV. Um, there was enormous censorship. So you were presented a very distorted picture mm. of what was really going on. But of course, the oppression was all around you. There was a huge gap between the haves and the haves nots, you know, between the whites and the blacks. Mm. So it was, it certainly bred a very strong desire in me um, to close the gap, to, to deal with people who were previously disadvantaged, to try and establish equity and fairness. Um, amongst those who were around me. And that's really what led me into the field that I'm currently in. Yeah, so um, so when the social work side of things finished, did you then move away from South Africa or is that what happened? No, I stayed in South Africa, um, but I left social work and I went into human resources. And I went and got another degree in human resources. I went and got a degree in human resources and I thought that what I could do was help deal with some of the systemic issues in organisations um, in order to create opportunity uh, for blacks and whites. And, but what then happened was I had a really interesting experience. I was working for a human resource company that was just doing management development and training for blacks um, at supervisory level. And because of my social work background and my systemic lens that mm. I apply to things, I argued that what they should be doing is looking at how to dismantle apartheid in the workplace. This particular company was not interested in doing that at all. And I left them to establish my own human resource business, which was designed to dismantle apartheid in the workplace. But of course, this was in 1990 in South Africa, and no South African company would let me set foot on their turf. They thought I would stir up a hornet's nest and cause terrible trouble for them. Of course, all the problem was there. They just simply didn't want to see it. So my clients then were all the multinationals who hadn't disinvested in South Africa during the sanction period and um, who were subscribers to something called the Sullivan Principles. They were mostly American multinationals, you know, like Coca-Cola, mm. um, the various big Absolutely. names, yeah. yeah, and household names. And uh, as subscribers to the Sullivan Principles, they subscribed to principles which said you would treat people fairly and establish equality in the workplace. And those companies were interested. So from 1990 to 1994, I worked with many of the American multinationals um, starting to do work to dismantle apartheid in the workplace, to identify underutilized potential, build the capability of blacks who'd been overlooked, um, start the company moving towards fair and equal pay. But there were lots of, you know, from, from a macro point of view, there were all kinds of restrictions. There was job reservation. Um, you couldn't vote if you were black. You, you didn't, sometimes it didn't matter how hard you worked what you did, you would never be the direct beneficiary of your efforts. So it was soul destroying for the blacks in the country. And I was chipping away doing the little bits that I could. But in 1994, when Mandela was voted into power, and it was, you know, the, South Africa was democratized. What was very exciting is that the work that I'd been doing with these American multinationals had a proven track record. And then all the South African companies invited us in. So the company that I was running, became very large very quickly. And I had a large team of diverse consultants and we would go into companies, South African and international, who were operating in South Africa. And our job was to dismantle apartheid in the workplace. And I couldn't imagine, well, begin to imagine the challenges that came along with that. I mean, 
I, it's not, it, was, it wasn't smooth sailing, I assume. No, not at all. The challenges were huge because the laws were changed very quickly. Once Mandela was voted into power in 1994, the society was democratised very quickly. Um, and so there was new legislation being promulgated you know, every few months um, in order to provide blacks with the rights that they deserved. But of course, the hearts and minds of the people followed much more slowly than the change in legislation. So that was the work we were doing. You know, the laws made it uh, compulsory to make certain changes, to create equal opportunity, to allow blacks to rise up into senior positions, to um, let them actualize their full potential. But the majority of people who were still in positions of power and privilege were white, and their hearts and minds hadn't changed, and they were still fairly racist and um, could not see the value in bringing diverse people into their organization at all. Mm -hmm. So it was a very long, hard road, but very, very rewarding. And I did that from 1994 until 2003 um, in in South Africa, and then in 2003 relocated to Australia and set up a consultancy here. And there was a really interesting story when I set up the consultancy here, because when I arrived here, a lot of people said to me, oh, Heather, why on earth did you come to Australia? You should have gone to a country like America where they've got real Mm. racial problems. I mean, this is a very egalitarian society. We don't need your skills here. Ha ha. <laughs> wow, mm. that's. Mm. I mean, I'd love to hear more about that. I mean, tell us, tell us about what that. So you, you came up with the same framework to come in to. Was it was it more focusing on the racial? Uh, no, when I arrived here, my view was that um, I'd come to meet people, to talk to people who were doing the work here, and I realised that the diversity agenda here was certainly not only about race. It was about race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation. But I also recognised that the diversity agenda was um, at quite an immature stage uh, in this country. Certainly, we didn't have the extreme polarisation and the extreme racism that existed in South Africa. But the, so when I arrived here, my objective was to help organisations embed an inclusive workplace culture that would attract and retain diverse talent of all kinds. Mm-hmm. So that would not just be on uh, the focus very would not broad. just be on race. Yeah. Very broad, um, and in fact. What I found most interesting was that everybody said, oh, Heather, it's going to be so easy here compared to the extreme conditions you worked with in South Africa. But I actually found it was just the opposite because in South Africa, people were overtly racist. I would get individuals who would walk into a room, cross their arms and say to me, you're not going to change the way I think. You know, these are my views and this is what I think about people who are black. And they owned it. And you would have to deal with that, but it was overt. It is much harder to deal with covert bias when people don't own it and they don't acknowledge it. So when CEOs would stand up and introduce me at one of their big conferences or to say to the executive team, Heather's here to do the work and it's going to be a walk in the park for her here compared to South Africa. I had to, I had to preempt that. I had to start yeah. preempting that to the CEO saying, please don't introduce me that way because actually it is much harder to deal with unconscious bias than to deal with conscious bias. And so in the first five years of work that I did in this country, as I was building my team here, our focus was on unconscious bias Mm. because I thought that that was the major barrier that had to be dismantled. So we started doing that work in Australia as early as 2007 and 2008, right until about 2013. Our focus was on unconscious bias in the workplace. Were there some aspects of workplace culture that South Africa was ahead of us in compared to Australia? Or... Did, were there some, was gender equality, was 
was uh, inclusivity of... I wouldn't say that gender equality, um, South Africa was ahead. And I would say that in terms of legislation, they were ahead in terms of legislating rights. But okay. as I said, the hearts and minds were trailing. Yes. Were trailing. Okay. So, but eventually the work over here, after dealing with unconscious bias for, for a long time, in round about 2014, 2013, actually about six years ago, mm. you know, I was getting um, one executive leader after another saying, Heather, this is a real problem. What we've got at the moment is that everybody now is talking about diversity and inclusion. It's no longer just about diversity. And what they're saying is, you can bring as much diversity as you like into an organization, but unless you establish an inclusive culture, you won't retain that diverse talent and you won't get the value it has to add. And they're putting diversity and inclusion onto our balanced scorecards and they're calling our strategy, strategy diversity and inclusion, but all they're still measuring is diversity. Mm. So they're saying it's all about diversity and inclusion, but all they're doing is measuring representation mm. in terms of gender or ethnicity or whatever it is that they were measuring. And we don't really um, focus on inclusion. And that led us, Symmetra, to decide that it was really essential that we started defining what did we mean by inclusion in the 21st century so you could do a proper measure of it for leaders if you were going to put it on their balance scorecard. And that's what led me into the field of psychological safety because all the research that was emerging was demonstrating that diversity of thought, if you leveraged it effectively, would optimize performance and innovation. But you could not get access to diversity of thought unless you embedded psychological safety in an organization. Which brings us to a great point, which is I'm hoping that you can, for our listeners, explain what does that mean? Psychological, psychological safety, what does that mean? Uh, and how do you embed that in the workplace? Okay. Well, psychological safety means that you will not feel the fear of being punished or humiliated for speaking up, for disagreeing, for pushing back, for expressing your divergent views, for experimenting with unproven actions, for admitting that you've made mistakes, for bringing your whole self to work. It is a major problem when teams don't have psychological safety because when they don't, it means that as much as the organization has worked incredibly hard to bring in all this incredible intellectual capital, leaders only get access to half of it. Because if I work for a leader who makes me feel that if I ask too many questions, I'm ignorant. If I push back and disagree, I'm being disruptive. I'm branded as being disruptive or negative. If I admit that I made a mistake, that I'm incompetent, if a leader brands me in that way and humiliates me in that way, what it's going to do is it's going to make me shut down. Mm. And if I'm shut down by my leader, then the leader is robbing him or herself, the team, the division and the organization of the full intellectual capital that I can bring to that organization. So psychological safety has been identified now as the number one predictor of high team performance and innovation. Number one comes above meaning, purpose, clarity, dependability. It is the number one predictor of high team performance and innovation. And it all starts with leaders. Well, I wouldn't say that psychological safety is only about leaders, but there's no question that leaders cast a very long shadow and they really inform the culture of a team. But even if you have a leader who 
can embed and has the skills to embed great psychological safety, it can certainly be undermined by team members who overturn that. Um, but in the end, if organisations want to embed psychological safety, what they have to do is build the skill of their leaders to embed it. And we've developed a tool called the Inclusive Leadership Index. It's a 360 assessment which assesses, you know, the, the manager, the peers and the direct reports, assess how inclusive the leader is on the basis of 10 competencies. One of those is psychological safety. And we found that over thousands of leaders now who we've assessed all over the globe, psychological safety is the third lowest competency. In other words, there are thousands of leaders who are struggling tremendously with the skill to embed psychological safety. They simply not conscious of what they're doing. They, there's no malicious intent, but they're not conscious of what they're doing. Yes. To and undermine no framework it. to really know how to start. And, to start. and no framework to know where to start. Okay. And that's what you and Symmetra do, is that correct? That's what we do. We're going to do the diagnostic. We assess, well, we assess the 10 competencies of inclusion, but psychological safety, because it's been identified as the number one predictor of our mm. team, performance and innovation, has now become a huge area of interest. And so in many places in the world now, we are running psychological safety programs, which consist of a diagnostic to assess what the current status of psychological safety is, and then interventions to work with leaders and their teams to build psychological safety, and then some ongoing interventions. Because the one thing you can't do is go and attend a training workshop on psychological safety and work out, walk out with a badge of accreditation saying you now know how to embed psych safety. What you have to do is help leaders on a continuous basis understand what are the small, continuous things they have to do every day, which be, might on their own seem meaningless and monotonous, but the cumulative impact of doing them all together every time you make decisions, every time you run team meetings, every time you communicate and interact, will do mountains to embed psychological safety in your team. Mm. I bet you've seen some uh, some really interesting cultures in your time. Have you got any examples, without naming them, but any examples of some really poor cultures that you've, you've been to and you just, have they been able to be saved? We've seen some really bad examples. Um, what determines whether they will change is the attitudes of the leaders at the top. And our work has been to give the leaders at the top, the CEO and the executive leaders insight into how critical psychological safety is. Because the problem is that this term psychological safety is very misunderstood. And sometimes very senior leaders think and say, when they are ignorant about what you really mean, how can you expect me to start wrapping people up in cotton wool now at the moment and make them feel all hunky-dory in the workplace when I'm facing the most impossible demands to achieve these KPIs that are, are really extreme um, in disruptive times when I'm required to do more with less and you want me to wrap people up in cotton wool and make them feel psychologically safe? How can you ask me not to put people's feet to the fire anymore and demand the high standards of excellence from them that I'm used to demanding? And what we have to do is really engage these leaders in understanding that that's actually the opposite of what we're asking. We're not asking anybody to be wrapped up in cotton wool. What we're saying is psychological safety and high levels of accountability run parallel. And if you achieve the two at the same time, you will reach that sweet spot of optimizing performance and innovation. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, with the, obviously the leadership is probably partly to blame, um, or when you go in there to, to look at the reasons why uh, the cultures aren't that aren't that great in in the workplace. 
is there what's the ownership of the employees is is there a role that they play as well absolutely um they they play a very important role as well um they are the behaviors that help people embed psychological safety are not rocket science they're just difficult <laughs> they're difficult to apply if you don't have a natural incl inclination to do so so for example one of the really important behaviors whether you're a leader or whether you're a team member is to balance advocacy with inquiry, to ask as much as you tell. Mm. If you're someone who belongs to a team and all you do is tell everybody what to do and you never ask and try to understand their perspective and listen and ask them for their contribution, then people don't feel safe with you. If you punish and humiliate people for and blame them when they make mistakes rather than saying, let's use this failure as a learning yeah. opportunity so none of us repeat it, you know, they will not feel comfortable working with you or will never come and admit to you that they don't understand something. They'll rather pretend that they understand it and, and only come to you when their, their mistake, which was a molehill, has become a mountain. Mm. You know, so there's a huge obligation um, on everybody in the team as well as the leader to embed psychological safety. There are a lot of other behaviors. I mean, balancing advocacy with inquiry is one of them. The other is really spanning the boundaries between in and out groups, and that's where team members are very responsible um, and have a huge accountability to do that. In every team, you will find what we call fault lines, people who belong to the in-group and people who belong to the out-group. The in-group might be you're in a revenue generating position and the out-group are the people who are just in support positions. Mm. The, the in-group might be that you are the people who've had long tenure in this organization, you've grown up in it and you've become a senior leader in it, versus the out-group of people who were lateral hires. In-group might be that you're Caucasian and the out-group is that you're Asian. It, they are, it can be demographic issues and it can be a range of diversity issues. But if you belong to an out-group, that out-group is not equal to the in-group. You do not have the same credibility. You do not have the same power and influence. Your ideas are not given the same importance. You simply aren't heard. You simply aren't recognized. You're not allocated the same opportunities. And what we do is a lot of work with teams to understand what their fault lines are so that they can span the boundaries between the in and out groups because if they don't do that um, then they're simply not capitalizing on the real value that everybody has to add and they've got a whole lot of people who feel disengaged and who are not psychologically safe and this is i assume very common still very common everything i'm talking about is it, very common through that assessment tool that I was talking about, yeah. the Inclusive Leadership Index, as I said to you, psychological safety is, you know, the third lowest competency. So what we're finding is the majority of teams, so we have a team-based assessment tool as well. And for the majority of teams and individual leaders, psychological safety is a skill that most people don't have and need to build. This is applicable to, to small businesses, I assume. Yes. How, uh, how does it differ? How does the approach differ with what you do or with a, a leader in a small business with, say, five, ten employees? Is, is it different, the approach that they should be taking um, or that you would suggest they take? Well, I actually think when you've got a small business, it's much easier to improve the levels of psychological safety more quickly because you've got a small target group. So when we yeah. get called into some organisations that only employ two to five hundred people, you know, they can set themselves a clear objective um, that they want everybody in the organization to experience the change in culture and to, they can achieve that in a year. When you work with some of the multinationals that we work with who employ 150,000 people, mm -hmm. 
you know, they, uh, it, it's a much longer goal that they have to achieve. They have to rely on the leaders to cascade their capabilities downwards. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense. Mm. The principles that you're talking about are universal, right? The principles are universal. The principles are human to human. It's how you interact with others. There are, it's not only the behavior, there are also systemic things you need to introduce. So, you know, it's no good saying, um, I'm going to make it uh, safe for you to admit your mistakes. Um, if at the same time, every time mistakes are made um, on your performance review, you know, you're going to get a lot of black marks mm. um, because then I'm going to hide those mistakes if there's a success bias. So the organizations, together with changing the behavior of the leaders, have to int start introducing systems, policies, procedures that reinforce this change in thinking. So for those who are trying to destigmatize failure, those organizations are introducing processes like, let's celebrate the mistake of the month. And so what they do is once a month, instead of just having a town hall meeting where everybody stands up to talk about the great successes and the money they made and the great projects, they give equal time to presenting the biggest failure that they had without wow. any finger pointing and saying, this is what went wrong and this is how we're gonna learn from it. So what they're saying is getting it right is much more important than being right. What a great initiative! That's a that's that's a really good way to look at it, and mm -hmm. uh, and I'm I guess a really good uh, way for other people out there to start turning those mistakes or what they're calling failures into an opportunity to celebrate uh, and communicate to people what they can do now as a result of that and celebrate the learning. What's the downside? So what's the friction point for most people when you go into or businesses when you go in, into there? What, what's their fear? Is the fear that they're going to be other than the cotton wool or they don't have the time? Is it a lack of priorities on their list of things that they have to do? Is it because the, the cost or the time to roll this out and they want, a, a, they want a, a magic pill that they can take and all of a sudden everyone's on board? I mean, what, what's some of the friction points you're finding when you're going to these large corporations or, or small medium businesses? The friction points are predominantly the um, fear that if they lose focus on relentless execution for targets okay. you know for targets and kpis and they spend time focusing on these so-called soft skills um, this will undermine their ultimate performance and i think um, we achieve the most success when we help leaders understand that the soft skills of the past have become the hard skills of today in other words, what I'm saying simply is that in the past, the most important thing you wanted was people on your team who had the business skills, the strategic skills, the technical skills to perform the job really well. Right? Yeah. That's what they had to have. Um, now that we are facing such disruption and such accelerated pace of change, most CEOs and executives tell me that the skill set that you hired a person for becomes obsolete in a year or two. And so what's much more important to them is actually to have leaders who have the soft skills, the agility, the flexibility, the ability um, to work and learn and change. Continual and to con development. And, and continual development mm. and who are learners, not mm. knowers, yeah. that those soft skills are more important. So they talk about the soft skills have become the hard skills. And when you have, if you help leaders understand that the soft skills become the hard skills, then they don't regard spending time on this as secondary and, uh, and a lack of priority. They actually see it as their number one priority. So a lot of the work that we have to do is first changing the mindset 
of the executive team and giving them insight into how important this issue is. Because simply going in and coming in at a mid-level to try and train people in psychological safety is a waste of time. Yeah, yeah because then the buying is not going to happen at the top. Not going to happen at the top. Yeah. And the leaders, the leaders at the top not only have to um, role model the behaviour, but they have to be ready and willing to make the systemic changes that I've been talking about to support it. Yes. What, what's the time frame to affect change? I guess it depends with the size of the organisation, the willingness, the leadership. Uh, but I assume this is not something that's going to happen overnight. But are you talking like a year period is something where you can start to see some benefits? And I assume not just the benefits, but I, I would also suggest that there's some investment back that they will be getting as a result yes, of this, right? Yes. Um, there's no question. Uh, you know, everything is done in baby steps. So even mm. when we work in a huge multinational, we're working in specific business units. Those are contained entities. And we've seen enormous strides um, in a year, in 12 months. Uh, remember, we use that assessment tool. So we're able to measure what are the current levels of psychological safety and then benchmark it one year later. So not only do we see the improvements in the psychological safety, but together with that, the business results. So we're working in a particular organization. Um, it was in the procurement division of a large multinational. And so for them, their most important KPI was to save costs. Mm. And um, although we couldn't establish a causal effect relationship, but only a correlation, the leaders of that business were convinced that the improvements in cost savings came from the improved team performance because of the better psychological safety in the teams. Wow. I'm sure there's uh, a number of a myriad of different examples like that you could probably give. There are many examples. Well, it's, re it's really good that that's, I mean, that you are proactively going in there. Is there identifying is the first step, is that right? Or, or assessing to see what they're currently A good doing. diagnostic is good because what you don't want is organisations saying, oh, well, psychological safety is the fashionable thing now, like unconscious bias was, yeah. and let's just go in and do some psychological safety yeah. training. We always say, let us come in and assess out of the 10 competencies that embed an inclusive culture, where are your strengths? and where are your developmental needs? And then based on that, let's help you embed the kind of inclusive culture you need. So you diagnose it. We diagnose it. You then it. provide the framework or the tools to then enforce some change or promote the change within the culture. Is that correct? Yes. And then is there a follow-up as well that happens? Yes. So if you're asking me what this, the typical kind of process of a solution yeah, looks like, there's a diagnosis, there's a foundation workshop where you're introducing the concept and what it is and why it's important, and how it impacts on team performance, and then an introduction to what the basic behaviours are, because there are a set of behaviours that would embed psych safety, but post that workshop, the most important thing is then to achieve the sustained change. And we achieve that in a few different ways. The first thing is we offer what we call nudge coaching. This is short 15-minute coaching sessions that are done every second week with a leader for 16 weeks. Right, so every second week, that's 32 weeks. Yeah. You know, you've got half a year. And what you're doing is you're helping a leader for 15 minutes every second week to contemplate and reflect, I'm going into meetings, I'm going to make decisions, how am I going to use the tools and techniques and behaviours that I've been advised? How am I going to plan for using them and implement them and then to analyse what impact it's had? Uh, we have other online tools, which is not online learning for the leaders, but online learning bites for the people who report to them. Because what we want to do is push pressure from the bottom up. We want... Every month, a learning bite goes out on psychological safety or psychologically safe behaviours or leveraging diversity of thought, and we want the people 
that they report to, to actually start putting pressure on the leaders to improve the way they run the meetings and to start leveraging their diversity of thought. So the, what the leaders do is they're given a toolkit and they're given a, what we call a prompt, a cheat sheet. And they go into a business as usual meeting once a month after this learning bout's gone out and they discuss what is it that you've learned and do you think we have psychological safety here or are we leveraging diversity of thought in this meeting or am I balancing advocacy with inquiry or what, or am I destigmatizing failure? And so you ensuring that on a weekly basis, there are conversations going on between the leader and team about what, how the culture is operating. That's the only way you embed sustainable change. It can't be achieved with a once-off workshop and an assessment once a year. I would agree with that. Uh, with the unsuccessful, has there been many unsuccessful integrations with this? And if so, was it mainly due to the leadership wasn't buying in, the people didn't really support it, it or the way it was integrated? Is there any examples? Of yes, the lack of success comes when um, you have a leader who says, I can only dedicate two hours to this. It's really important, but you've got to do this in two hours for my leaders. We can only fit in two hours in our annual breakaway. So you'll come once and you know, you can't achieve that, it's impossible. So we do come in and we tell them how important it is and we introduce them in a quick superficial way. With the hope and of getting With the hope of getting change. Yeah. But what happens is you'll get a, you know, you have this distribution of leaders on a continuum and you get those who, grasp and understand immediately how important this is and they do go back to the workplace even with such a short intervention and start trying to apply things differently but by far the overwhelming majority just get back to their really busy world and though they might think about this for one month within six weeks they've forgotten all about it you know so our argument is rather do if you want a, a real return on your investment then you have to deal with this properly you have to understand to change human behavior to change the behavior of an adult who's been running things in a certain way for 30, 40, 50 years, you cannot change that in two hours contact with them. And you also want to make sure that it's not just a fat, like it's not something that's the flavor of the month or this is what we're going to do, focus on Absolutely. this month and then be gone. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's got to be that long-term yes. approach. Yes, and it's not only the amount of time that they spend in training, it's whether they um, agree that there needs to be proper assessment, whether they agree that afterwards there needs to be the ongoing coaching, whether it's full deep dive coaching sessions or whether it's the short sharp nudge coaching. It's whether they agree that they will surround this with systemic changes as well, where it will support the change they want to achieve. Yeah. All of that is critical because if they don't do that, they simply won't achieve their objective. Is it the change of the behavior that's the toughest part or is it the belief behind the behavior that you're really trying to get in there and and say, well, listen, you're unconsciously doing it this way, but if you what you're probably unknowingly doing is this, and it's affecting by doing this, this, and this, as opposed to you coming in there and saying, I wonder why you're behaving like that, or what your belief is that thinks that that's okay. Is it more of a, is there much of the belief side of things in there? Well, there are two schools of thought here. Yeah. There's the school of thought that says, if you want to change behavior in the workplace, change the behavior and then the mindset will follow. In other words, fake it. Yeah, fake it till you make it. Yes. I don't believe in that. Um, I, I've seen that happen. But by f I have a strong belief that you actually need to address what yeah. has led to the evolution of that behavior in the individual and help them understand its real impact. And when they can understand its real impact long term and not only focus on the short term, 
and the immediate consequence, but the long-term consequence, then you will get a, you know, a sustainable change in behavior. So that is why we find doing the assessments and a real deep diagnostic to sit in front of a leader and say, you've got 25 people here who've evaluated you on 55 observable behaviors. Mm. This is what they say you're great at, but these are the behaviors that collectively these 25 people are saying you struggle with. Let's understand what led to the evolution of why do you do that in the workplace? You know, what happened in your childhood, in your early work experience when you were led by others? What's got you here? And it, let's look at its impact and now let's help you change that. You know, I, I'm a strong believer. I suppose it's my original social work background, you know, that makes me believe that if I really want to change human behavior, I have to get to the deep understanding. The underlying. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. With, with the research and the evidence that you now, I mean, you've been doing this for so long, mm. you're getting some good evidence and data mm. behind you and mm. that supports all this, I assume. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We've got it. We At Symmetra, we really believe in taking an empirical approach. So we collect data all the time and we're collecting fascinating data with using our three different assessment tools on inclusion. You know, this inclusive leadership index and the team inclusion pulse survey and some enterprise-wide surveys. And so we published lots of articles, we presented lots of conferences. And the empirical data is really important because I have to say, leaders want, they don't want the soft and fluffy. And they very often say to us, it's the fact that you've got this empirical data that gives you credibility and they, they really sit up and listen. And they want to benchmark themselves against others. You know, otherwise they just turn around and say, well, isn't everybody like that? Mm. <laughs> but find me a leader who isn't competitive and says, I don't want to be in the champion zone. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. don't like it when they see themselves in the intermediate or the developmental zone. They want to be up there in the champion zone. So we use that Gamify, assessment. Right? <laughs> yeah, and we use that assessment to motivate them. It's a good catalyst for change, behavioral change. You've used the term unconscious bias. Mm. If you wouldn't mind just elaborating on what that means in this sense, um, so I can delve okay. a bit deeper. So unconscious bias refers to the preconceived notions that an individual will have about others. Um, these preconceived notions are not based on objective reality, but on ideas that you formulated about people who are different to you over the course of your lifetime, which you've been conditioned to believe. And then it's buried in the neuroplasty of your brain and you're not conscious of it. And what happens is when you're faced with making a decision, in a nanosecond, completely unconsciously, those preconceived ideas are activated in your brain and filtered through and impact on the quality of the decision you make. I can tell you a story about myself at my own expense, if you want Perfect. me to. Okay. I often tell the story because when I go into work with executive leaders um, and I ask them whether they think they've got unconscious bias, a very small percentage, maybe 20, 25% will admit they've got bias. I'll get them to answer on a polling system anonymously and 20 to 25% will say they have bias, the rest say they're undecided or they don't. If I ask them if other leaders have bias, that jumps up to 75%. And that's the common human tendency to believe that you don't have bias, but everybody else has it. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, I say to them, I've been in this field for 20 to 20, 25 to 30 years now. I'm supposed to be an inclusion and bias expert. I should have no bias, but I certainly have got bias. Um, many in the story I like to tell, to say I'll tell it at my own expense, is that many years ago, I, I was still living in South Africa at the time, and I was very young, and I got on an aeroplane to go and present a paper at an international conference. And I'm standing in the aisle waiting to get my seat, and there's like a bottleneck, and I'm sitting there impatiently, restless. I can't get to my seat, so I turn around and look right up the aisle, and I can see straight into the captain's cabin. 
Now, this was before the terrorist attacks in New York, mm. when they never locked the door to the captain's cabin. So it was wide open, and I could see the captain's cap sticking out above the high back chair. And just serendipitously, just by chance, at that point, the captain decided to stand up, turn around, and face me to call the flight attendant who was behind me in this aisle. And when the captain turned around to call the flight attendant, I noticed with absolute shock and no element of expectation at all, complete surprise, that the captain was a female. Not only was she a woman, but she had long blonde hair cascading out of her cap and didn't look a day older than 27 to me. And my heart started beating, you know, very, very fast. I started having heart palpitations yeah. and breaking out in a sweat. And when about a minute or two later, I sat down in my seat and I looked to the left and I looked to the right and I thought, is there anybody on this plane who knows me? Because I felt like such a hypocrite. I was on that plane to go and present a paper at an international conference in Milan on gender equity. Okay. And here I took one look at the pilot and when I saw she was a man, a woman, not a man, it caused an anxiety attack. I felt she couldn't be, couldn't be good enough or skilled enough to fly me safely across the ocean, you know, to Italy, that um, I, I, I was going to be in danger. And it had caused a gut reaction. I broke out in a sweat. And I understood for the first time then that my behavior was not aligned with my intent. I had very good intent. Um, there was nothing wrong with my intent. I was flying around the world at that point in time, fighting for the rights of women in the workplace. That's what I was doing. But my behavior was in direct contradiction to it. And who knows when or how, but during the course of my lifetime, up to that age when I was about 30, I think, um, I had been conditioned to believe that what a good pilot looked like was a man, not a woman. Maybe through movies or uh, TV or books that I'd read. And then I also had been conditioned to believe that what a good pilot looked was not only a, a man, not a woman, but a man with graying hair at his temples. He would have been ex-military. He would take off Boeings and land them and he'd have lots of experience and I'd be safe to fly across the ocean. So in that nanosecond where I had buried in the neuroplasty of my brain, I had categorized that what a good pilot looked like was a man with graying hair at his temples and she did not fit that categorization. I judged her as incompetent. So my judgment was based completely on my preconceived notion, on my unconscious bias, not on objective reality. And it affected my judgment. And that's what happens to people every day. I'm deciding here to allocate an opportunity to at work. I'm deciding whether this person is suitable to recruit for a position. I'm deciding how to performance manage someone. I'm deciding whether I think what this person is saying, standing on the stage, presenting to me is worth listening to or not. And all of it is contaminated by my preconceived notions. So unconscious bias is a major barrier to accessing the real value that diverse people have to add, people who are different to you. And, and is there any simple way that people can be more conscious to this? Because we all have it. Right? Yes. I mean, from parents to schooling to experience throughout yeah. whatever you experienced in life. Everyone's got this. I mean, how, how do we become more aware? Okay, so there are two steps to counteract unconscious bias. The first step is to become aware. And to become aware, it needs to become part and parcel of the everyday language. We argue that if bias is an inherent part of the human condition, then it's not an accusation of discrimination. It's something we should talk about. We should name it and call it as part of our language. So certainly what we do in the workplace is encourage leaders to become familiar what all the most common forms of bias look like and to start naming it and calling it for each other because your bias may be blind to you. You don't see it. It's your blind spot. But I can guarantee you it's absolutely palpable to other people. They see it, they feel it, and they can observe it happening. 
The second thing is once you become aware, you have to learn how to counteract it. Because if anyone tells you go on an unconscious bias training program, because this will wipe out your unconscious bias, it's a load of nonsense. You can't wipe it out. Our brains have been hardwired to use intuitive thinking, which is where unconscious bias sits, in order to help us to function efficiently on a cognitive level. But the problem with intuitive thinking is it sacrifices accuracy for efficiency. It's efficient, but it's not accurate. So we can't count, we can't eliminate it, but what we can do is counteract it. And how we can counteract it is by learning to use debiasing techniques. So we train leaders on skill, debiasing skills and techniques that they can use. And in addition, by getting teams to have a contract of agreements that to give each other license to name and call bias when they see it. And it's amazing to see teams who operate with that, who can be in a meeting and say, hang on a minute, Heather, yeah. you've told me the bias you most, or you most inclined to, or I know the bias you most inclined to is action-oriented bias, which means you don't spend enough time analyzing, planning the detail, and you move too quickly to take action. You know, you've got to be seen to be doing something before you've had enough time actually analyzing whether it's the right thing to do. And so I've seen teams who will say, to their leader, that's action-oriented bias. I don't think we've got enough data here. I think your inclination is for us to make a decision here today in this meeting, let's go home and come back next week and delay this until we've got more data. Or there's overconfidence bias here. You are blinding yourself to all the evidence that contradicts the reality here. You are so inclined to go with option A, you won't even listen to all the problems that exist. You know, and we're going to make a bad decision. It's going to undermine the quality of the decision. So I've seen amazing, inspiring examples of teams who will name and call each other's bias collectively like that, and they make much better quality decisions as a consequence. There's some serious power to being conscious to this, isn't there? And yeah. and if you can get good at identifying yourself, I find that when I have a strong belief about something, uh, and I think why why is that? And you start to question, well, why am I feeling this way? Uh, and then you start to question, well, yeah, why? what's what's the belief that's mm. holding me to feel mm. the way I feel about this? And taking a step back rather than reacting straight away, but to sit back and say, well, why is this? Yes. Why do I feel this way? Is that a form of that uh, unconscious bias? Yes. And that belief often is not a belief based on objective reality. It's a belief based on your preconceived notions. Yeah. And so it's very good to question it. Very good to question it. The first thing we, we need to do is we have two systems of thinking, system one thinking and system two thinking. And system one thinking is that intuitive response, which is based on beliefs and preconceived notions. And it's cognitively very efficient and quick, but it is not accurate. And we need to switch on our system two thinking, which is the analytical thinking much more often and say, where did that come from? And in fact, some of the world's best leaders, so the CEO of Apple turns around and says, um, we must not throw out our intuitive thinking. Intuitive thinking is very important. It gives us an indication of what we intuitively think is right or wrong. But then what we have to do is we have to expend all the blood, sweat and tears that we have in order to investigate whether our intuitive response, that initial response was accurate. And once we've done that and we've switched on our system too and we've really investigated it, we'll make the best decision. Well, that, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. really... Yeah. Really simple, but really, I mean, it's powerful. It's simple and it's powerful, but it's very hard for for us because as we live in an environment where we have to do more with less yeah. and we have to make decisions more and more quickly, mm -hmm. the common human tendency is to revert to system one thinking most of the time. Yeah. And we don't have time to switch on our system two. And, the, and 
all the research done by the behavioral economists at the turn of the century at Harvard, Yale, MIT, Columbia, Oxford, mm -hmm. Cambridge, what they identified you know, in their work is that the human brain is lazy and we revert to system one thinking most mm -hmm. of the time. We default to it. Really we don't switch on our system two thinking often enough. Yes, and really is the first thought or decision quite often the best one. And, and also the other thing that I would also maybe ask you about is the second order consequence. So thinking about the thought or the action after the, the initial decision or the initial thought that you have is saying, well, what's the result of that? And, and actually start anticipating what's the follow-on effect that this could have. Yes, um, yes. So that you can also think not just about the decision, but the reaction consequences that comes with that the impact that's the impact it. the Perfect. impact the impact and the outcome absolutely so yeah. so this has been really really interesting and and i've really enjoyed this conversation could you just tell me about the psychological safety and the the impact or the effect it has on mental health in the workplace so this is a component a part of it or a big part of it what's your thoughts on this psychological safety will have a big impact on mental health in the workplace um, because an individual who comes to work and who doesn't feel psychologically safe, in other words, I come to work and I'm afraid I'll be punished or humiliated for disagreeing with you or for expressing my divergent views or just expressing my concerns that there's some subtle nuances that you haven't taken note of and I'm worried whether this project will succeed if we don't address A, B or C. The person who feels um, or who, who comes to work and feels I'm part of the out group and my ideas don't really have credibility, so what's the point of voicing them anyway? You know, and I'm not going to have much control mm -hmm. and influence over anything that happens here. An individual who's subjected to that becomes very disengaged. Um, and we all know the impact of engagement upon performance and productivity. Yes. And an individual who becomes disengaged, we know, is an individual who becomes depressed, an individual who feels... Um, you know, a sense of worthlessness. Um, and so all those negative consequences for an individual who feels disempowered and low sense of self-worth will lead to exacerbating mental health problems. Now, very often, if it's an individual who's um, well-balanced and in touch with the reality of how they feel um, and has the ability to step out of their shoes and observe what is happening to them, those individuals will voluntarily leave the organization. That's where organizations, when there's low psychological safety, will lose a lot of highly desirable mm. talent. But the individuals who are less resilient, the individuals who are more vulnerable, the individuals who don't have the ability to step outside of their shoes and understand what is happening to them, you know, will linger in and remain in that position and become more and more disengaged and depressed and it will have a major impact on their mental health. That makes sense. And mm. being in the position you are, you get to see the impact this has. We see the impact. Yeah. We see the impact, yeah. We've spoken really a lot about the workplace uh, as it relates to psychological safety, but I imagine that it also incorporates an aspect that's outside of work, that people feel safe to be able to say, hey... Um, you know, my wife's sick or my husband's being diagnosed with something, I'm just not feeling the best at the moment. Is that also a part of psychological safety? Not just the work-related stuff? Sure. Yeah. Um, if you don't feel you can bring your whole self to work, that means you can't bring the problems you're having at home to work, yes. whether those problems are domestic violence or illness yes. or mental health problems. And if the problems that you're suffering from at home are problems that have a 
negative association or stigma attached to them, you'll feel even less inclined to bring it to work. Um, so there's no question we cannot separate, you know, work from home. People bring their problems to work every single day. Um, we know that the people do not, you know, they, they don't dissemble, they don't arrive at work and shut, pull a shutter down and say, well, I'll leave those things. Their, their preoccupation with those problems has a direct impact on their ability to function at work. And so there's no question that um, we have an obligation in the workplace uh, to make the person feel that they can bring their whole self to work yeah. and bring those problems so that we can address them. I mean, that's why EAPs and all of those systems have emerged in the mm. workplace because the, 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 the employers recognized that um, unless you really treat the whole person and respond to the whole person, you know, you won't get um, the engagement and the performance from an individual that you are seeking. Yeah, it seems very old school now almost where you say to somebody, leave it at the door when you come in <laughs> yes. and just do your job. Mm. I mean, that's that sort of mentality cannot be any good for any organisation. Belongs in the 19th century. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, just a few quick questions. Mm. Who's been one of your biggest sources of inspiration throughout your life? One of the biggest sources of inspiration? Well, actually, for me, Mandela was, you know, because of my experience in South Africa. And the reason for that was because, you know, Mandela's, uh, Mandela's um, motto was unity in diversity. He said unity and diversity will consolidate national sovereignty. He believed that, um, you know, it was no use holding on to anger or um, bitterness or vindictiveness and that uh, he, had, he really lived the real spirit of reconciliation. And so I've seen um, that if individuals come into an environment and are prepared to bring all the parties together in order to ensure that there will be equity and fairness, this has a major impact upon everybody, a major positive impact. He's been very inspirational for me. And because it was close to home for me and it was close to the work yeah. that I was doing. Mm. 100%, what a great human being mm. Uh, mm. he was. And Incredible, yeah. Um, and, and legacy still living on quite mm. strong. Absolutely, very much so. Um, and what, any amazing books that you can recommend to readers uh, for listeners, sorry, to read. Yes, I think if listeners are interested in the field of psychological safety, they should really read um, the works of Professor Amy Edmondson from okay. Harvard University. She's she's done an enormous amount of work in this field. Her most recent book, her first book was called Teaming, and then her most recent book was called The Fearless Organization. Really an excellent book to read. And lots of TED Talks on it as well. Perfect. Well, there you have it. Uh, Heather's given you her advice, and uh, and what an insightful conversation this has been. Heather, I really appreciate the time, but also the work you've done to date is is amazing and inspirational, um, especially from the time when this first started as a social work journey back in uh, the apartheid days in South Africa. So uh, what, a, what a journey it's been, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot, a lot happening moving forward. What's the future hold for you, do you think? Oh, well, I'm still going to be working for a long time. Some people look at me because of my age and say, aren't, aren't you slowing down yet? And, you know, I've always believed that if you love what you do, um, then work doesn't feel like work. And I love what I do. I'm very passionate. You can probably hear that from the way that I speak. I'm very passionate about what I do. And so, you know, I'm just forging forward. <laughs> well, it's certainly a great example of that. And is, is there, how can people get in touch with you? Um, they can get in touch with me by first of all going to the Symmetra website, www.symmetra.com.au. 
um, where there's lots of interesting videos yeah. and uh, description of our solutions. They can also get in touch with me by um, emailing me, yeah. um, heather.price at symmetra.com.au or on my mobile, 0413-772-350 or our office in Sydney, 02-8570-9400. Wow, you certainly knew those numbers. Good on you. Well, thanks very much, Heather, <laughs> and what a great uh, podcast it's been and thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.